The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast, where you can listen to a new story every first and third Friday of the month at high noon. If you like the show, you can help make sure the Terrifying Lies Podcast stays on the air by backing the show. If you want to back Terrifying Lies with a monthly subscription for swag, such as t-shirts at the end of each season, check out the links in the description. You can also Venmo tips. For today's story, I present a new take on corporate espionage. Everyone knows that when it comes to corporate America, sometimes there can be a lot of arrogance and greed at the top. Today, I offer you an example of that C-suite good old boys club maybe taking it a bit too far. This is Hostile Takeover, Part 1 of 2. Written and performed by Craig Nibo. The enormity of the executive restroom overwhelmed me as I stood at the urinal. The administrative secretary had given me a key to the upscale lavatory, practically presenting it on a pillow as an almost ceremonial act. For over 20 years, the law firm had grown from a three-partner rolled-up-sleeved sweatshop to a six-floor mega-organization. And I had, at long last, been allowed to office on the top floor, a lavish outfit, half-country club and half-business superchamber. I dined on sushi brought in every day if I wanted. A sexy masseuse worked the knots out of my shoulders at the tail ends of my lunch hours. I stood at the windows of my high-level office and looked down at the grind of traffic and pedestrians so far below. I scarcely believed my circumstances. Don't get me wrong. I had to pay big time for my partnership, both in elbow grease and in cold, hard cash. But as I stood there at the urinal, looking at the gold flecking embedded in the bas-relief tile, I couldn't help but shake my head in wonder. I'd paid my dues. I had no family. Just burned through my third marriage. Couldn't even think about picking up a hobby. Practicing law had become my life, and there wasn't much room for anything else. Feels good, doesn't it? Familiar voice broke me out of my reverie. I glanced over at Gary Goldthwaite, the firm's namesake. He stood in an adjacent stall. He'd managed to step up to the urinal, unzip, and start in without my even noticing. There he was, his eyes behind those thick, far-sighted spectacles, his almost entirely white hair, much of it gone, framing his lined face like a cap of snow. He smiled, revealing every surgically implanted tooth in his clean mouth. Sure does. I have you to thank for it all, sir. Oh, poppycock, Gary said, finishing up just behind me. We walked to the sink. Side by side, we washed like surgeons, using the expensive soap dispensed from automated machines. With wet hands, we turned to Luke Harrington, the restroom assistant. He handed us both towels. 
Hello, Mr. Goldthwaite. Mr. Balls. Is there anything else I can do for you? No, thank you, Harrington, Gary said, hooking a 20 out of his pocket, putting it in a tip jar at the edge of the counter. I followed suit, only with a $5 bill. Harrington thanked us as we made our exit. Once outside the restroom, just before parting ways, Gary grabbed my elbow and stopped me. Mr. Balls, now that you're one of us, there's something else I need to bring you in on. Can you call me Tyler? I said. The other partners and I, we're in a sort of a club. It's extremely exclusive and we don't like to talk about it outside this floor. Something like the skulls? I asked. Gary laughed out a series of vulture rasps. Oh no, nothing so secretive. We're not skulls. We're not even masons. Our club is something we whipped up all on our own. And it's time, young man, for you to begin playing with the big boys. Gary reached under the lapel of his $2,000 suit and withdrew an envelope. Gold, with a red seal. Someone had written my first name on the front in ornate calligraphic loops. I took the envelope and examined the wax seal, a fist engraved with the words, Hostile Takeover Fraternity. Gary patted me on the shoulder with his liver-spotted hand and smiled, making good use of his $50,000 in orthodontics. You'll find all the details inside. Gary Goldthwaite spun on one of his Italian heels and left me at the door outside the executive washroom, stimmied, holding an envelope that contained information that I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to know. worked through lunch and skipped my massage. One thing hadn't changed since becoming a partner. The firm still owned me. They could call me at any time, day or night. They could force me to cancel anything in my personal life. They even had a say in what I wore, what establishments I frequented, and how I used my name in public. With the salary they preferred, they expected nothing less than total commitment. Found a quiet moment to open the envelope Gary had given me. Used a gold letter opener I kept on my desk to slit the top and drew a piece of parchment out. I spread the parchment on my desk and read it. Cocked my head to the side and read it again. The note read, Dear Mr. Balls, You are henceforth and honorably enumerated as a member of the hostile takeover fraternity. Congratulations. Commencement details. Shia Land Refuge, Route 67, Lot 72. Monday, June 6th, 9 a.m. We ask that you drive a nondescript vehicle that is at least 15 years old to the site. Please shred this notice after reading. Yours truly, Gary Goldthwaite, and the rest of the executive team. I worked until nearly 2 in the morning, hitting casebooks, writing, billing every hour to the firm's clients. When I finished up, I packed my laptop and left my office. Just before I flicked out the lights, I spotted the gold envelope sitting on my mahogany desk. I picked it up and gave it a final read before tossing it into my desk-side shredder. As I drove home, I wondered about the note. I knew the Shia Land Refuge. The government had declared it a state park for its historic value. Something about the Civil War. 
battle had gone down there, or maybe the place had acted as a triage for wounded soldiers. The facts were somewhere in the back of my law-clouded mind. A forest fire had burned most of the Shia a couple of years ago. Firefighters had stopped the blaze. I'd taken a drive down Route 67 through the park. Drab hills unfolded as far as the eye could see. Signs marked the drive as one of America's official scenic byways. I found it ironic as I looked across the barren landscape of scraping, burning trees. If Route 67 was a scenic byway, so was the three-quarter mile private road that led to my garage. I spent most of my weekend trying to work from home, accessing files on the firm's servers remotely, but it couldn't slip into the work group that had brought me so much success in my career. I thought about Gary's note spread out over my desk, staring up at me, taunting me. I realized halfway through my Saturday that I didn't have a nondescript vehicle that was at least 15 years old. In a sudden panic, I pulled up the local classifieds on the internet and ran through a list of for sale by owner cars. I settled on a 1992 Ford pickup for $3,500. Picked up the phone and closed the deal for an even $3,000. I called a cab and made it to the owner's home by three in the afternoon. I paid him in cash, took the keys from the old codger and drove the truck home. It handled like a pregnant rhinoceros. I've never been a truck guy. I appreciate art in vehicle design, but I have to admit driving the old girl had a kind of visceral effect. I found the handling to be squishy at best. Didn't pick up like my Lexus off the line. There was a kind of earthen honesty about sitting behind an enormous steering wheel. I didn't mind looking down at traffic for a change. I hope none of my neighbors saw me as I rattled the Ford into my garage. I parked it in an empty stall, out of sight. I killed the engine and listened to the ancient motor cough out its last few breaths before shutting down. I opened the creaking door and dropped out onto the treated concrete, stepped back from the truck, put my hands on my hips and chuckled. The old clunker filled an odd spot, parked next to my Lexus SC430. I laughed at myself, tossing the keys up and catching them. I went into my house. With a little time to kill, I decided to treat myself to a bit of leisure reading and maybe a streamed movie before going out for drinks with Stan and Victor, two old friends from law school. As usual, Stan's eyes flicked from girl to girl in the sports bar. He was the only one of us who had never been married. Probably, his eyes feasted a little too often to make any woman feel comfortable around him. I shook my head and ate my sandwich. So how's the new gig? Sammy asked. I'd known Sammy since high school. While other kids had played video games, we played lawyers. Oh, I don't know how I feel about it. Seems like I worked just as hard as when they had me under the thumb as a greenhorn assistant. There's this weird fraternity going on at the top. Well, it's not unusual for executives to engage in a little fraternity action from time to time. You're in the inner circle now. You should count yourself lucky. Check her out, man. I swear I'm going to take her home tonight, Stan said. 
I and Sammy ignored him. We both knew he wouldn't be taking anybody home but himself, probably to cry and eat a big bag of chips while watching some bad reality TV show that featured surgically modified women. It's different. It's formal. The boss gave me a bonafide invitation, an actual gold-leafed envelope, wax-sealed and all. Said I couldn't speak of it outside the office. Sammy smiled. And here you are, blabbing about it right here in public. Who are you going to tell? I don't know, maybe I'll run an expose or something. I half laughed. Dude, she looks just like Angie Mills, Stan said. I rolled my eyes. Stan wore me out with his oogling and cat slurs. We're meeting Monday in that burned out state park. I had to buy an old pickup to go incognito. The note required that I get a set of wheels that was 15 years or older. No Lexus? Sammy spread his hands expressively. I picked up an old Ford and bought it from a nice old guy who flicked his dentures between sentences. Man, they got you over the barrel. Guess you'd do anything for that paycheck. I noticed someone out of place at a corner table across the room, a wedge-shaped gentleman sitting alone. Odd for a man so bulky, and I'm not talking baby weight, to be eating alone in this place. I took a double take. Couldn't help it. First, I didn't recognize him, but as Sammy and I continued on with our conversation, it hit me. I did recognize the guy. He worked in security back at the firm. I'd spotted him occasionally running the front desk when the usual jelly-bellied uncle of a security officer took the day off. Sammy's end of the conversation rolled off into the background as I let my eyes linger on the man for a little too long. He looked up from his enormous hamburger in my direction. When our eyes locked, I thought he'd look away. He didn't kept them on me. A straight stare, so much intensity behind his gape that I nearly forgot that I was sitting in a sports bar across from two of my best friends. After slanting me the eye for a handful of seconds, the wedge-shaped man raised a finger to his lips and issued the universal signal for hush. I nodded back at him, my eyes probably unhinged, my mouth probably hanging ajar. I wondered how long firm security had been following me. Such as the Association of the Dead, Sammy's voice faded in as I returned to reality. They're the weirdest of the weird. They only admit people who have been declared dead when they're still alive. It isn't unusual for the bigwigs at the top to band together and start a fraternity of sorts. Question is, look, I don't know if I should be talking about it. I said, flicking another glance at the big man sitting at the corner table. Sammy's eyebrows furrowed. You're freaking me out now. The golden ticket's probably nothing more than a swanky lunch invite. The main thing is... I'm in the big league. The money's good, and all I had to trade for it was three wives and my soul. I feel your noise, man. I put in 80 hours this week. Angie, Stan said, almost salivating as he kept his eyes on the blonde across the table. I felt sorry for him. Did you forget about Angie Mills? She's out of your league, man, Sammy said. Ah, the hard truth. I can dream, can I? Stan said. You can dream about pipes, man, Sammy said. Stan frowned. The wedge-shaped security guy folded his hands on the table in front of him and locked his eyes on me. I fidgeted. Even from across the room, those sunken eyes wore me thin. I changed the subject to sports, football in particular, a tactical move away from Gary Goldthwaite's invitation that had caused me to impulse buy a rusty pickup truck. We must have sat at the table for another hour before I finally left the bar. I don't think the burly man took his eyes off me even once the whole time. I don't think he even blinked. The Terrifying Lies Podcast will return. 
after this short commercial break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. I didn't know what to wear. I owned six suits, none of them worth less than a thousand bucks. To any event that required a special invitation, I always opted for something tailored. Dress for success and all that. But there was the truck. I thought about it as I looked through my closet. It sat in my garage, probably leaking something onto my treated concrete. I couldn't imagine driving it while wearing an Armani or Brioni. In the end, I decided on a pair of khakis, a golf shirt, and loafers. I made myself a quick omelet and read the business section of the Times while I ate and washed it down with a glass of orange juice. I checked my watch minute by minute as the earliest part of the morning ticked away. Finally, it was 8.30. I folded the Times and left it on the table. As I opened the door to the garage, anxiety rose from my guts. I looked over my shoulder at my living room, designer carpet, a $5,000 wraparound television set, various sculptures and artwork, each piece worth at least $10,000. All of it had come from my partnership at Goldthwaite Legal. I was obligated to attend this meeting, but I couldn't shake the sense that somehow my life wouldn't be the same once I threw in with the hostile takeover fraternity, whatever it was. I went into the garage and closed the door behind me. I mounted the driver's seat in my new truck, fired up the engine, and left my house, my television, my expensive paintings, my folded copy of the Times behind. As I drove down the block from my house, keeping an eye on the rearview mirror, a gray BMW circled onto my street. I didn't recognize the car as one of my neighbors. My nerves crackled as I watched it settle in behind me. One of my neighbors might have bought a new car. Carl Harlow, across the street, owned a dealership. It wasn't unusual for him to borrow a different car on an almost daily basis from the lot. I squinted into the mirror for a better look. Couldn't make out the features of the man behind the BMW's wheel, but I could tell it wasn't Carl. Shook my head and forced a smile. I was getting paranoid over this whole silly thing. I clicked on the radio and chased the seat until I found a talk station. I settled in for a 20-minute drive to the Shia Land Refuge. My eyes occasionally flicked up to the rearview mirror. The gray BMW never fell more than a quarter of a mile behind me as I shot down the freeway. 
An ill-kept gate guarded the way into the Shia. Someone had taken pot shots at an earthy brown sign marking the entrance, leaving it riddled with bullet holes. I shifted down and turned onto the two-lane highway that led to nowhere. The Shia Highway was nothing but a big 40-mile loop that tucked and weaved over and around a series of barren hills. The fire had left the place a charcoal wreck. And even now, five years since the blaze, started by a wayward bolt of lightning, the whole place still had a spooky end-of-days feel. As I drove up the road, I glanced at the mirror, looking for Mr. BMW. There he was. He pulled up to the entrance of the Shia and got out of his car. The same man who had made me at the sports bar the night before. I slowed to a crawl and watched him, dressed in a dark suit, sunglasses, a pair of leather driving gloves. He looked like a member of the Secret Service, so much for inconspicuous. He walked to a swinging gate on the side of the road and grabbed it with both hands and gave it a shove. The gate whined closed. He looked at me, making no bones about his presence or purpose. I thought about calling the police. I even took my cell phone out of my pocket to check the service. To my consternation, I watched the bars deplete as I drove deeper into the park, further away from the one entrance and exit point. I thought about turning around and confronting the man in the BMW or even ramrodding my way through the gate James Bond style, but my better senses took over. I chuckled to myself. This whole thing was probably some kind of extravagant joke. I turned up the radio. Some deep-voiced talk show host grinding his axe against Democrats. The Shia had camping spots, 78 to be exact. A couple of miles into the park, the Forest Service has installed a small parking lot, complete with a self-service kiosk where tourists could pay $16 a night to pitch a tent. As I drove the winding loop, I saw no reason to ever camp in the Shia. The scenery offered nothing but burned-out trees and nondescript boulders. And yet, I passed a camping lot occupied by patrons. I spotted a red Subaru, fronted by a pup tent. A couple sat at a morning fire, both of them holding tin cups. They seemed happy enough with the simplicity of their adventure. I didn't get it, but who am I to judge? As I passed, the man smiled and waved and returned the gesture. Shook my head and kept driving. I passed a sign that read Group Lot 72, one quarter mile ahead. I turned onto a dirt access and took the one quarter mile at 15 miles an hour. A large rock formation blocked any view of the actual group lot till I pulled right onto the grounds. As I came around the bend, I spotted a handful of vehicles, all at least 15 years old. A dilapidated school bus centered the wagon circle of cars and trucks. Most of the metal on the bus cracked with rust. Someone had mounted a custom cage on top of the bus and a narrow catwalk and railing along its sides. Looked like an old junker one might find in the backyard of a chronic hoarder. As I pulled up, Gary Goldthwaite came around from the back of the bus, holding a duffel bag in one hand and waving with the other. He was dressed in, to my relief, business casual. He pointed at a blank parking spot in the wagon circle and waved a hand. I pulled into the open slot and killed the engine. I pushed open the creaking door and stepped down onto the gravel. Gary walked across the lot toward me in a shambling old man's gait. The wind tossed what was left of his snow-colored hair. I noticed some of the other executives moving around the old bus. It was Jim Carmack, the chief financial officer, standing at the back of the bus, its door open. He worked on something that involved coiled rope, a winch maybe. I spotted Charles Neesom, the chief technology officer, as he climbed a ladder and mounted the custom cage at the top of the bus. He moved to the center of the roof, twisted a catch of some kind, and opened a specially designed trap door. 
Chick Almsworth, the vice president of marketing, stood in front of the bus, its hood open. He ducked into the engine. I had no idea Chick knew anything about mechanics. None of the partners were younger than their late 50s, with Gary leading the pack. We just celebrated his 72nd birthday at the office, where he announced that he could only be convinced to retire by the tip of death's scythe. We had all laughed, but we knew that the man would never put down his books and stop practicing. He loved being a shark. So glad you decided to come, Gary said, extending his hand, and I shook it. I was glad I had seen him wash thoroughly back at the executive lavatory. I have to admit, I said, you have me curious. Oh, this? Gary gestured toward the odd assortment of vehicles. It's nothing but a little side project. The hostile takeover fraternity? I cocked up an eyebrow. Yes, you know all the guys. There's Jim, Charles, Chick, and now you. Shook my head. It's all I could do under the circumstances. I get it. Gary said. Listen, this is a venture that we don't talk about, but I assure you it's legitimate. We've been at it since 1974. I wasn't invited until 82, but I've found the benefits of being a member most rewarding from a psychological perspective as well as a business perspective. I might even say that a lot of my fortune has come with the relationships I've formed in the HSF. We're ready to roll, Charles, still on the roof of the bus, said. Gary tossed his battered duffel bag down at my feet. Look, I know it's a bit of a head jerk, but trust me, you'll get it. Now gear up. You can use my van to change. We're going to roll in a couple of minutes. This has been Hostile Takeover, Part 1 of 2, written and performed by Craig Naibo. I've worked for a few companies during my lifetime. Some of them large, some of them small. When you work for a company, you spend your days with an interesting mix of people, from those on the floor all the way up to the C-suite executives. I have to admit, I've never been a C-suite guy. I can't make a blanket statement because people are way too complicated to stereotype. When we write characters, those characters can't possibly reflect the complexity of even the least interesting real person. And at the top, of any large company, you find all kinds of different people. There are kind people. There are also arrogant bastards. The story Hostile Takeover tends to magnify the arrogant bastard part of the C-suite. Be sure not to miss the exciting conclusion of Hostile Takeover on the next episode of Terrifying Lies. I really don't think you can predict what is about to happen to Mr. Tyler Balls during his induction into the elite hostile takeover fraternity.
for today's song, I thought I'd give you a collaboration. A while ago, I released an album called Glimpses. For this record, I solicited lyrics from some of my author friends. David West rose to the top of my list. He's a great author, and I recommend you check out some of his weird Western fiction. He wrote the lyrics for the tune I'm about to give you. It's called Black Sun. Awake by the light of a black sun overhead Where you dwell, a cage without a bird Fools believe we were born to be dead But illusion wraps you up inside the herd The truth fled Disappearing in the void Of spoken word Drifting reefward On wine dark seas of dread Toward frozen shores Of ignorance and lead Forgetting the electric songs Of the universe
cosmic thunderbolt We are left here ages in chaos Worlds in collision A world of illusion Mankind in amnesia Angels without wings This is who we are This is who we are Finding the black sun This is who we are Prisoners of the wrong star Awake to the black sun Take me back to the black sun Take me back to the black sun Take me back to the sun This has been Black Sun Music by Craig Nibo Lyrics by David West. Thank you once again for coming into this room and spending a few minutes with me. If you could look around, you'd see hundreds of listeners have gathered here. We all want the same thing, to be whisked away to worlds unknown and to, at least for a few minutes, forget about the worries of our days. I'm grateful to have you as a guest. Until next time, I wish you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 